Jesus, would you help us? Father, we thank you, you're a God who speaks. We thank you, you're a God who's always speaking. And Father, would our ears be open and attuned to you? Lord, would we get, not just in our minds, I loved what Anne said, it was great. Lord, we want revelation, not just education. Lord, we want illumination, not just information. So Father, let's hear what you want to say to us. God, we're okay if you're going to change and challenge some things in our thinking this morning. God, we're okay if it's things that we have to chew on and think about and study and search ourselves, Father, because we want to take these things seriously. So, God, would you help us be good soil this morning and help me in my communication speak you, not me, in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're doing a series on victory, Woo. Um, which is good. It's triumph. But if you want to know about victory, as I said last week, there's two questions that people like me, maybe no one like you, but people like me ask. Victory, over what? And victory, for what? Last week we talked about victory over what? What was defeated? And we talked about sin. So this week we're looking at the answer to the question. Victory, for what? What was the benefit? What does victory get us? Yay, I'm victorious. What difference does that actually make? Because if you don't know, you're not actually victorious. So it's important. So last week's summary, just to kind of condense and remind and refresh us, sin has a personal, social, and cosmic impact. It impacts us, it impacts our relationships, and it impacts the world, the entirety of creation. Sin led to pollution, it led to a powerlessness, it led to a perversion of who we were made to be, and it led actually to a partition because we withdrew from God. God didn't withdraw from us, we withdrew from God. Which I, if you remember, I showed you from Genesis, the Old Testament, and the life of Jesus, that it's us who withdraws and he pursues us. Because biblically, there's no evidence at all that God is so holy he cannot look at sin or sinners. There's no evidence that he has to turn his back or he can't abide with it. In fact, the opposite is totally true. God is such a good, loving father that he draws nears to sinners despite sin, despite shame. And we looked at the kind of the three kind of stages, Genesis, Old Testament, and Jesus as evidence of that. So, should we carry on with where we were? Yes. Three of you are excited about that. Great. Everything I'm saying today, I believe I'm getting from Scripture. But you may not agree with me. That's okay. Go away and look for yourself. Study, read. You're okay sending me emails or messages saying, what about this? What about this? And my email is Andy Merrick at hopechurchglasgow.org. <laughs> it's fine. But I'm okay because dialogue is okay. Because to change our thinking, which actually is what repentance actually is, we associate repentance with sin. But repentance is about change and transformation. So the life of the Christian is repentance all the time. It's not just about sin. It's about being changed from who we're not meant to be to who we are meant to be, which is like Jesus. That's what repentance is. So changing our thinking changes our living and our understanding. That's okay. It's a process. It's not necessarily always instantaneous. So dialogue is fine. Process is fine. Wrestling with things is fine. It's totally okay. It's part of the Christian life. When you talk about the cross, you have to talk about sin, which means you have to talk about atonement, which means you have to talk about sacrifice, which means you have to talk about covenant, and that takes you to the cross. And each of those are probably books in themselves. 
<laughs> so, I'm quite ambitious this morning, and I'm scratching the surface, and there's so many things I, I want to say, and I'm trying not to, you know, twitch too much. So let's start with atonement, okay? Let's start with atonement. Right, Jesus, help me. Atonement is an English word used to describe God and man being made one, at one month. That's what atonement is all about. It's about the bringing together of God and man. Now, the Hebrew word for making atonement has a much richer sense and a deeper sense as a lot of Hebrew words do. It can mean to cover over. It means to purge. It also means to appease, to please. And what atonement is biblically is basically saying it's the sense that when you atone for something, you're making an offense right. You're recognizing an offense has been committed. You're making it right to such a degree that the other person that you've wronged is appeased, is satisfied, and relationship is restored. That's basically atonement. So to the Hebrew, there's three components of atonement. Recognition of sin, the addressing, making right, or covering of sin, and the reconciliation of unreconciled parties. Now, biblically, atonement was made through sacrifice. Sacrifice actually isn't unique just to the Bible. Almost every ancient culture and civilization that we kind of have historical records of have some kind of concept of sacrifice, animal sacrifice, even human sacrifice for some of them. And this is because back in the ancient world, blood was a symbol of life, which means that spilled blood was a symbol of death. We all know that to be true medically and scientifically because when you've got blood, you're okay, and if you don't have any blood, you're probably not okay. Okay? They worked that out thousands of years ago, and that's how sacrifice was devised. Okay? I'm looking at my wife, who's a doctor, who's just shaking her head. She did four years to learn that, and I've just done it in two minutes. Five years, sorry, five years. <laughs> But the thing is with sacrifice in most of these cultures is this. This is the logic behind sacrifice, okay? The logic is this. The gods are so angry at me and want to punish me because I'm so, so wrong with me. But if I can sacrifice an animal or a person, they won't smite and crush me. That was the thinking behind sacrifice. The gods are so angry, I have to kill something so I'm not punished. That was the thinking behind sacrifice. I've got some questions about that that I want to start to look at today. Is that true of God? You've got to think about this one. Does execution, slaughter, punishment, and blood satisfy an angry God? Is that what the Bible teaches about sacrifice? Let's have a look and start to build towards the finished work of the cross. Okay? So... The first thing we're going to look at is Genesis. Good theology is often found, the basis of it, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's called the principle of first mention for your theological. If you're not, it's just what does Genesis say. Okay? The first mention of sacrifice, so profound, isn't it? So profound. The first mention of sacrifice in the Bible is in Genesis 3, verse 21. Okay? Just after humanity has eaten the fruit. 
It says, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. It's a verse we kind of forget in the whole story, kind of brush over it. Because it's before they're out the garden, but after there's God's judgment on the man, the woman, creation, and the serpent. Okay? So what's going on here? I've got seven observations from that verse about sacrifice that I want to start us to think and consider, okay? The first one, it's God initiated. God does it. God provides the sacrifice because they can't do it themselves. Atonement comes from God, not from us. Second one, it's costly because there is death. It's reminding them that sin actually has a cosmic cosmic impact. It's not a simple, easy thing to atone for sin. And that's a powerful symbol there for us to understand the gravitas of the situation. Thirdly, it covers over their guilt and shame because they had clothing that covered their nakedness, their shame. Remember from last week, we talked about how their, 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 their nakedness changed their perception of themselves because of this, the, the distortion of sin, and it changed how, therefore, they wanted to relate to God. This covers them over and deals with that. Now, here's, a, again, a, a thought that I want us to kind of con- to contemplate. Was the covering over for God or for them? Because it seems to me like God doesn't actually need it because he was already pursuing them. So before they were covered, he was pursuing them. But they were the ones who withdrew. Is this covering actually giving them a physical picture to, in effect, help them feel better so that they can approach God? when before they wouldn't have, because they would have just seen their nakedness of God, that's an obstacle. But actually, because they're covered, it helps them approach God. God doesn't need it, he's doing it for them. Number four, there's a symbolic substitution. Another dies as a symbol that sin has brought in, death. There's a death sentence. It's not you, though. It's the sacrifice that is taking on this death but it's a symbolic thing remember God had said to them if you eat the fruit you shall surely die and we learned last week what that meant was that the clock of death is started to tick on them from that moment on and death might have been the next day the next week the next month the next year the next decade it didn't mean they would die there and then it meant the countdown had started and God had said you shall surely die he didn't say I shall surely kill you Fifth one, it's corporate. It's one sacrifice for both of them instead of one sacrifice per person. Sin is social and relational and communal. Sin affects other people. Atonement isn't just individual. Sin is not just individual. And sometimes in the West, we are more aware of how my forgiveness instead of our forgiveness, our need for forgiveness. Number six, it's unemotive. What I mean by that is this. God knows that they're guilty, right? Because he's pushing, you know, they're sacrificing, showing that he knows that there's guilt. There is guilt. But his response is not anger. It's not wrath. It's not fury. It's not rage. It's pursuit. It's love. It's the heart to reconcile. There's no sense in these scriptures that this sacrifice is trying to divert or absorb or protect them from God's fury. That's key. 
That's key. And last one, it's connective. Meaning, in giving them the clothing to cover their shame, this sacrifice is making it possible for them to connect with God. He's there pursuing them. It's helping them say, okay, I can do this. We can connect with you. There's some observations from this first sacrifice. Now, I want to see if these things hold true as we walk through the rest of the Bible, because otherwise we're just making some stuff up. But the first time sacrifices appeared, it's got to shape our thinking, hasn't it? And I think it needs to develop as we see it go on. So here's my proposal, okay? If the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, it means that the need for sacrifice, which is death, only exists because of sin. Does that mean that sacrifice was never part of God's plan or design for relationship between him and humanity? Because sacrifice didn't exist before the fall. Sacrifice was never meant to be a key component that shaped how man and God relate. He's instigating something here, not because he wants it, but because we need it. God meets us where we are at to take us where he wants to lead us. It's a principle called divine condensation, not condensation, that's totally different. I've been in Scotland, I'm not in California, I'll get it wrong. Um, When you condescend, coming down to he meets us at our level he's humble and comes down to serve us so so he can take us where we want to be because his goal is relationship they needed something symbolic so they could feel they could approach God so my starting conclusion as I'm shaping something is this from the first sacrifice in the Bible we can see that the original function of biblical sacrifice is recognizing and covering sin and connecting disconnected parties. Everyone agree with me there? Does that make sense? Now, that must mean then that as other cultures developed this concept of sacrifice, as humanity spread across the world and went to the nations and fulfilled the Genesis uh, commission to you know, go forth and multiply and fill the earth, and we would go, we know what that means, but yet they go and fill and they have babies. That concept of sacrifice went with them and would have been passed down generation to generation to generation. And it would have got corrupted as sin corrupted and their idea of God was corrupted. And it became about satiating bloodthirsty God. That's a proposal. Because it doesn't seem like that was originally the purpose of it. So what about the rest of the Bible? What about the rest of the Bible? The unfolding story of the Bible, which we would call progressive revelation. That's the theological term. It just literally means, as the Bible moves on chronologically, how do things evolve and develop and get shaped? Theologians love to just make things really complicated. So what about some later sacrifices, okay? There's so many, it's hurting me to just kind of do a flyover. Are you all with me? Sacrifice, yay, happy Sunday. Genesis 15. Abraham enters into a covenant with God, and there's a sacrifice. There's a sacrifice. Now, covenant, and I know Andy fairly recently talked about covenant, just as a reminder and a refresher, it's a joining of lives. It's a pooling of resources. It's a lifelong commitment to someone else. Covenants are established and sealed and ratified by both covenant partners coming together to sacrifice so a covenant then is about 
covering one another. My life covers yours. Your life covers me. And connecting. We are united. We are together. No matter what. So sacrifice reiterates this covenantal reality of covering and connection. Therefore, and this is again, it's a key point, sacrifice and covenant are inextricably linked. Without sacrifice, there's no covenant. Sacrifice leads to covenant. And in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for covenant, which is berith, actually comes from a root word meaning to cut, to cut. Because a sacrifice is cutting. Cutting something, killing, cutting, cutting, pouring out of blood. In Hebrew, it's to cut a covenant. It's got this idea of sacrifice, even in the very definition of it. Now, when you made a covenant with someone, what you'd often do is come and have a covenant meal. Both covenant partners would come together, have a meal. It would often involve eating the sacrificed animal. It would often involve the breaking of bread. Remember that one? The drinking of wine. Remember that one? And feeding each other. Like... you like that you get prophetic mime here as well sorry if you're listening on the podcast you've missed a gem um it's showing the joining of flesh my body and your body we're joined it's where we actually get the tradition of a wedding cake from and the weird awkward thing where grooms and brides feed each other it feels over the face and it's got oh look how romantic your veil's got cake icing all over it it's from the covenant ceremony the cake was the bread it's broken feeding each other so romantic it's a symbol we are one the same bread feeds us both because we are one. What about Exodus 12? The Passover. A perfect lamb. Killed. Blood smeared around the door frame. The story tells us that the destroyer angel sees the blood and passes over the house that has the blood smeared around it. Not bringing death to that house. The sacrifice covers them from the wages of sin, the wages of Egypt's sin, death. And inside, they'd eat the lamb that was being killed. They'd bake bread, but not give it time to rise. And they'd dress ready to leave, basically saying, we, we know we're about to leave. We need to be ready. We get to get ready to go now. God's about to deliver us. And by following Moses' instructions and eating the meat, they're partaking in a covenant meal with God because they're showing through the eating of the meal and the sacrifice that they are connected and in covenant with God they are his people therefore they get the benefit of God's strength and resources i.e. salvation deliverance and rescue because when you read the text some of the Egyptians did it too actually went out with them which is interesting isn't it God's all about covenant Exodus 24 the establishment of the old covenant. There's a sacrifice, and you can look at this yourself if you think I'm just making things up. Moses and 70 elders of Israel climb the mountain of God, and they all see God. This is Exodus 24. With their own eyes, and in his presence, meaning with him, what do they do? They have a meal. It's a covenant meal. It shows connection. So covenant, like sacrifice, is about covering and about connection. 
What about in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement? Like the key sacrifice in the whole of the Old Testament, arguably. An annual ritual of Israel. Let's just refresh what it was all about. The high priest, there's only one, the high priest covers a bull, sorry, sacrifices a bull to cover his own sin. There we are again. Two lambs are taken. One is a sacrifice and one is a scapegoat. The sacrifice is killed and the blood drains and the high priest takes the blood into the innermost part of the tabernacle, which was basically their really pretty colourful tent in the middle of their camp. And inside the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant, the gold box. And inside the gold box is the law, the tablets, you know, the Ten Commandments. Uh, There's manna, and also there's Aaron's staff that would bud. All these pictures of God's supernatural providence and rule and indication of his presence. It was where, symbolically, God lived in the middle of them. So going into God's presence and sprinkling blood over the Ark of the Covenant. And this act, because God established this in Leviticus, is atoning for, covering, the sin of the people for the previous year. Now the high priest would leave and he's still got blood on his hands. So what does he do? He lays his hands on the scapegoat and we have this sense of a scapegoat in society. We use the term. A scapegoat is when someone takes the blame for something that they didn't do. Well, that's exactly what happens. The scapegoat has... The, the priest with his bloody hands puts his hands, excuse me, not saying you were a goat in any way or anything like that, <laughs> awkward, um, and says, puts them, imparts the sin onto the scapegoat, and then it's driven out and banished out of the camp to say the sins have gone, they've been taken away. David alludes to it when he says, blessed is the man whose sins have been taken away from him as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. This sacrifice didn't only cover the people, but it also restored, renewed, and reminded them that they were covenant people connected to God as his people. So what we're seeing through Genesis and through the unfolding Old Testament is that sacrifice covers sin. It establishes and renews covenant, and that brings connection between man and God. Still with me? Is this helpful? Making sense. Thanks to two of you, it's finding helpful. Brilliant. Some observations about the Day of Atonement. I made seven observations about the first sacrifice in Genesis. Do they hold up with the Day of Atonement? Let's have a look. Is it God-initiated? Yes, because God's the one who outlines the sacrificial systems of the law, not the people. It's not Moses' idea, it's God's idea. Atonement comes from God, not us. Is it costly? Yes, there's death. It's reminding them of the cosmic implications of sin. It's a powerful symbol. Does it cover over their guilt and shame? Yes, that's why they do it. But we'd already established last week that God doesn't turn his back on people who sin, on sinners. So again, does it give them a physical picture that they can approach God because he was already there? Because they're in covenant. The covenant, he won't break the covenant. They break the covenant. And he's saying, I'm still here. This is for you to remind yourself that I'm here and and I'm not unapproachable. Is there symbolic substitution? Yes. 
Another dies when there's a death sentence on the, on the sinner. Remember, sin causes death. Not, I'm God saying, I will kill you because of sin. Is it corporate? Yes. It's one sacrifice for all the people instead of one sacrifice per person, which would be a lot. No one would be eating lamb that year if it was for everybody. One sacrifice for all people. Sin is social, which means that one person's sin affects the whole of the community. Is it unemotive? Again, does God know they're guilty? Yeah. They need to do this every single year. This is an annual ritual. But what's his response? And when you read the scriptures, there's no sense of anger. There's no sense of wrath. Actually, it was faithfulness, mercy, and grace. There's no sense in the text that God, that this sacrifice is diverting, absorbing, or protecting them from God's fury, that he will smite them and crush them. There's no sense that the goat, the lamb, is, being, is going to be tormented and punished. There's nothing like that. There's no sense of this kind of raging, furious emotion. It's key that we hold on to that. Is it connective? Yes, because it's reminding them that they are covenant people connected to God. So, from the sacrifices of the unfolding Bible story, we can see the function of sacrifice. That's biblical sacrifice, not pagan sacrifice. It recognizes sin, it covers sin, and it connects disconnected parties through covenant. Still with me? Helpful? What's it got to do with the cross? We'll see. You know the answer. So, the next bit. Jesus' is perfect theology. Theologians would say it's a Christocentric hermeneutic. I have no idea how you spell it. Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus is the example. What does he say? What does he do? How does he act? That gives us our ultimate reference point and guiding principle. We've seen from the first sacrifice and the sacrifices of the Old Testament that the overall function of biblical sacrifice is recognizing sin, covering over sin, and restoring connection. Hopefully I've convinced you of that and not labored my point too much. We're going to unpack what it means when it comes to the cross. We saw that the first thing about biblical sacrifice is that it recognizes the problem of sin. John 1, verse 29, says this. This is John the Baptist. He sees Jesus and says this. Behold, which is basically, look. Everyone look. Everyone look this. Look at what I'm looking at. Focus. Look, look. Behold, the Lamb of God. Interesting language. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God took on flesh and came in the person of Jesus to be the answer to the sin problem of the world. Not just the sin problem of me, not just the sin problem of you, but the sin problem of us and the sin problem of the world, the cosmos. God coming himself shows it was a big deal. A big deal. He does not say, here is the Lamb Lord who comes to satisfy the rage of an angry God. He says, it's coming to take away the sin of the world. The second thing about biblical sacrifice is that it deals with sin. 
1 John 2, verse 2, written by the same guy, the same apostle of John, the same guy who is the beloved of Jesus, Jesus' best friend, he would know Jesus incredibly well, says this. He, that's Jesus, is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. See, it's not just individual, it's communal and it's cosmic. Now that word, propitiation, in lots of other Bible translations is translated differently. What it means actually is this, atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and the sins of the world. So what happened on the cross? Because we can say Jesus died for our sins. What does that mean? What does that mean? Why did he have to die? What does it mean to die for sins? How does that work? What actually happened that dealt with the individual, the social, and the cosmic impacts and effects of sin? Because this is the finished work of the cross. If we don't know this and don't get this, we miss out on some of the blessing that leads us to victory. So firstly, sin, if you remember last week, polluted us. It tainted us so that we are guilty before God and we are unclean. The cross cleanses us. The cross cleanses us. 1 John 1.7 says that the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. We are clean. If you are a Christian today and you are in covenant with Jesus, you are clean from sin. You are clean from sin past. You are clean from sin present. And you are clean from sin future. You are clean for all time. You are clean. You are not 99% clean because that's not clean. You're not 50% clean because that's definitely not clean. It's not a boy shower clean. You are clean. You are clean. It's okay to be happy about that. There's no more pollution. You've been purified. We've been purified. There is no stain of sin anymore. We have been cleansed so that we can be temples of the Holy Spirit. Because the priest would go in and sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of the, t- the camp where God would live to ceremoniously, ceremonially cleanse the sanctuary, the place of encounter, not because God needs to be clean, but so that we could be clean in our encounters with God because God dwelt amongst the people. We've been clean so that we can be the house of God. We can be clean so that we can be the home of God for us so that we understand. Now we get that. Brilliant. But there's more. There's more. Sin caused us to build a partition up between us and God. The cross reconciles us. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. There's no more barriers between us and God anymore. Barriers from his side or actually legitimate barriers from our side. There is no issue or obstacle from him. If there's an issue or an obstacle, it's from our end because he's reconciled. He's made friends with us. He's made peace with us. We're no longer at war. We're not enemies, but friends. And not only are we just friends, we've been adopted. We're children. It's weird when parents hate their kids. 
Even when I'm woken up at crazy hours in the morning, I still love my kids. I do. I, I do. <laughs> I do. We've been reconciled. We're friends. We're sons. We're daughters. There's no partition anymore. Thirdly, sin perverted us into corrupted versions of who we were made to be. It twisted us. It was, we were made crooked and corrupted and deformed. The cross gives us a fresh start, a new beginning. 2 Corinthians 5 says, we know this one. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, look, pay attention. The new has come. We've got a new nature. We've been born again. We've been regenerated. The corrupted version, the twisted, messed up version that sin had permeated is being extinguished and we are free from the twisting of sin and all that that would entail for who we are and what we're called to do. It means that we are seated in heavenly places. And it's not like an awkward squatting next to God. I really hope the Father doesn't notice that I'm here. Shh. I'm going to hide between an angel and this really holy person. Shh. I'm kind of seated on the throne on the edge. I'm going to fall off the armchair. Whoa. It's not like that. It's not like that. We're seated in heavenly places. Why? So that we, with God, can rule and reign in partnership with him. As per the Genesis Commission which is what we were made to do, to rule and reign earth in partnership with God. We've been restored to that place. I don't know about you, but I don't like people, when I don't like someone, I don't really want them sitting next to me. God is not tolerating us. He loves us. We've not been given a job description, we've been given an adoption certificate. We've not been given a job description to make him happy with us. We've been given him an adoption certificate. And when adoption happens, it's nothing to do with the will of the child and it's everything to do with the will of the parents because they make that decision. He has adopted us. We're in heavenly places. We've been born again. Are you with me? Is this helpful? Okay. Number four, sin reduced us to be powerless slaves of sin and of the devil. The cross pays the price to set us free from both. Now, if you were a slave in the culture, the Greco-Roman culture, there were two ways you could stop being a slave. The first way is you die. The second way is your freedom is bought you buy your freedom out, or someone buys your freedom out. And that's what is redemption. Redemption is paying a price that someone set free. Or you die, which means, yay, I'm not a slave. Oh, awkward. <laughs> the cross actually does both. The cross does both. Mark 10.45 says, Jesus said he's come to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom payment. A ransom payment. Jesus paid the price for us to be redeemed and set free from slavery. Our sin debt was paid, freedom was bought, the power over sin is broken, and we were redeemed. You don't have to do what sin tells you anymore because it's not our master. 
is not in charge. And we've got a new nature, so actually any influence it has is because we let it, as opposed to a compulsion because of a sin nature. We've been redeemed, we've been set free. But also, Romans 6 says this, the one who has died has been set free from sin. And when we identify with Jesus and his death, actually we die too, in a symbolic way. Meaning, we've been set free from the power of sin. So we've been set free because we died, and we've been set free because he paid the price. And it gets more, it's, the cross is ridiculously amazing. Okay? Romans 7, 4. We, we died to the law because of Christ. We were hidden in Christ. He fulfilled the law. That's what he says. Meaning, all the obligations, all the requirements, all that perfection of standards that were needed to keep the law, Jesus fulfilled. He fulfilled it. We're hidden in him. He dies. Meaning, we, the law isn't a master over us anymore. We don't need to live according to some kind of crazy legalistic system to please God. We're adopted. We're adopted. All the accusations... All the violations that could have been legitimately used against us are dead. They're nonsense. They're nonsense. We're free. Number five, sin caused relational and social tension. But the cross unites us all in Christ. And Galatians 3 tells us there's neither Jew nor Greek. That's racial. There's neither slave nor free. That's economic. There's neither male nor female. That's gender. There's no division or different class standards in Christ. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We're all equal. There's no division or pecking order. We're one family. We're one bride. We're one church. We're one people. That's what the cross does. Number six, sin opened the door for the invasion of death. The cross erases the death sentence because it defeats the one who holds, holds the keys of death. And Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself, this is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He became flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Meaning, Jesus died when he didn't legitimately have to die to basically say, this doesn't stick actually, I'll have that. He took back the power from the devil over death. So death is dead. The grave is not the final answer. The grave is not the final word. It's not, I'm going to be there now and I'm worm food. No, 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 no. There's always a tomorrow. There's always a tomorrow. Because we'll go to be with him when we die. And there's, going to be, there's the promise of a resurrection where we get new bodies which some of us are probably really happy about. We get new bodies that are like him. Like him. We don't even get what that really means. You read the Gospels and he does some weird things like passing through walls and you're like, what's that? Am I going to be like one of the Avengers? I don't know. But death is dead. Death is dead. There's no more death sentence. That's why Paul says, we're just going to go to sleep and we'll wake up. Five stone lighter. <laughs> what about number speak for myself? Yeah, thanks. All right. Rub it in. Number seven, sin impacted the cosmos and it distorted creation. 
That's why we see this. We see that in nature, don't we? Some of the stuff that nature and animals and how they are with each other, you're like, it just doesn't feel like God would make that. Things like natural disasters, you're like, is that how when God said it was good, that was part of the plan? No, no, that's the distortion of sin. But the cross brings things back into alignment with Christ, with the promise of a new heavens and a new earth that's going to be made. Colossians 1 talks about Christ reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace with the blood of the cross. Even the war that's within creation is going to be stopped. And number eight, sin handed over the keys of the earthly authority to Satan and the powers of darkness. They're in charge. We looked at some of the names of the devil last week. The prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this age, the prince of this world. The cross defeats the powers and takes the keys back. That's why Colossians 2 says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's why Jesus could say that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The coup has been thwarted. The powers of darkness are defeated. And now, spiritual warfare is them fighting for survival. That's what it is. It's not them fighting for a place of victory. It's them fighting for a place of defeat. Trying to cause as much wreckage and havoc as they possibly can. It's a scorched earth policy, which means we're retreating. Let's cause as much havoc as we can. That's what spiritual warfare is. How do we know that God accepted this sacrifice of the cross? It's the resurrection. The resurrection is a great big statement where God says yes to Christ's sacrifice. Because Christ was raised up, God saying, I accept this. Paul tells us in Corinthians that if the resurrection didn't happen, we're to be pitied amongst all men. Because it's all empty, it means nothing. The gospel is not the gospel without the resurrection. But, like the words of the song that we sung this morning is said, if you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. That's the promise of the resurrection. He had new life, we've got new life. That's the resurrection. So what's the finished work of the cross? I'm coming into land, if you can give me three minutes. What's the finished work of the cross? It's salvation, which means unity with God. It's us being in him. It's us united with him. These are all scriptures in the New Testament. It's us hidden in him. Us so intimately connected with and in the Godhead. And yes, we are saved from things. Pollution and partition and perversion and powerlessness and death and the devil. Yes, but that's not it. We're saved for something. Unity with God. See, the goal of salvation is not just my sins are forgiven. The goal of salvation is God. We get him. We can know him. We're reconciled. We're adopted and we're connected to him. The cross isn't primarily about forgiveness. It's about connection because God wanted sons and daughters. Do you remember that the third thing we said about biblical sacrifice is that it connects disconnected parties? We saw that sacrifice establishes new covenants. Christ died to establish the new covenant. One sacrifice for all people for all time. A new and better covenant than the old covenant, which had a constant need for sacrifices every year, every year, every year. 
We don't need that anymore. Sometimes some of us live making sacrifices. I need to be a living sacrifice. The point of being a living sacrifice is I belong to him. I want to live in a way that is like him. It's a thing from a place of being accepted, not a thing we do to be accepted. Remember, we talked about covenants being established and through a covenant meal. That's why communion is this. Do this in remembrance of me. You eat my body, you, drink, you, you eat my flesh, you drink of my blood. Communion is a covenant meal. It's a sober thing, but also a joyous thing. Because we are saying, God, we are part of your covenant people. It's a social thing. We are part of your people. That's why we do communion. Let me end with this. We've got the seven things I talked about, I, I felt like I hopefully established, looking at the first sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. Are they true of the cross? Is it God initiated? Yes, because the Father sent the Son. He so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. It's costly. There was death. The death of God, if I can say such a thing. It wasn't a simple, easy thing to just dust it away. It covers over guilt and shame. But finally, absolutely, permanently, individually, socially, cosmically. It was a symbolic substitution. Another dies when the death sentence was on us. It's corporate. One sacrifice for all people, all time, once. We don't need to crucify Christ again. We don't need to add to what he's done, which is legalism and religion. He's done it, accepted by the Father. It's unemotive. Maybe, if there is a next time I preach, we'll look at this one a lot more in detail. But Isaiah 53 teaches that the thing that killed Jesus actually was not the anger and wrath of the Father, but it was the weight of sin that he bore. Sin killed Jesus, not the Father. People would say, what about Hebrews 9, which says there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood? But that verse says, under the law, there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. We're in a new covenant, not an old covenant. Jesus, if it's... If there's a punishment, there's no forgiveness. We can't call it forgiveness. It's a transaction. We can't call it forgiveness. Jesus didn't come to rescue us from a rageful God. He came to rescue us from sin and its effects so that we could be reconciled to God. It's key. It's a big difference. It's connective because there's a new covenant that's established. So I'm going to end with this. Biblical sacrifice recognizes sin is an issue. It deals with sin and it connects disconnected parties. So what is the finished work of the cross? It's this. Our sin has been covered. We're new creations. We are free. We are clean and we are children of God. We are forgiven. But there's more. We are connected to God in a new and better covenant. And God makes his home within us. But there's more. We're equipped, we're anointed, and we are commissioned to advance the kingdom until Jesus returns for his covenant people.
That is the finished work of the cross. It restores us to our place as sons and daughters on a mission with God. It deals with the thing that stopped that from happening. 